So let me invite you to get your Bibles. It will be on the screen, but I would encourage you to have your Bibles to follow along there. And let's stand together. Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 23 through chapter 4, verse 7. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, uh, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Lord, help us today as we humble ourselves before you, through the ministry of your breathed-out word, may your Holy Spirit have freedom and activity in our hearts. Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you, would you give us? And Lord, what we are not, would you make us now? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, certainly Christmas is a wonderful time of year. Um, I always enjoy the Christmas season because it means that Halloween is over, right? Um, and yet, part of the Christmas season is a time when our environment is decorated. We went out for a meal the other night, and I was just noting in the, in the restaurant just how beautiful all these decorations were. There's, there's something about the atmosphere of Christmas that's really a lot, a lot of fun. And of course, it includes the, the, the music that is played and, and the smells of Christmas and even the tastes that come along with it, peppermint bark and things like that. It's a time when families come together to reconnect from all over the country or even around the world. It's a time to, to let those around you know that you love them and that you appreciate them. And we often do that by sending cards and sending notes. It's a time to, to share gifts, to enjoy some good food, and to take a break from the busy lives that we have. Yet, we know that those things are only the byproducts of the true meaning of Christmas, right? Those are the, the benefits that come with having a day to sell aside, to, to celebrate. So God sent his son to enter this earth 
as a little baby. That is what we ultimately are celebrating. It is Emmanuel, God with us. It is the incarnation, God becoming flesh. But as wonderful as Christmas is, we must remember that it is only one part of God's glorious redemption plan. Friends, a Christmas without the cross is meaningless because Jesus truly was born to die. And the cross without Christmas is an impossibility. You see, so we can't just kind of isolate it, although we can look at it in the context of the greater redemption story. Um, It is part of that story, and it is a significant part of the story, but it is one of the aspects in that redemptive story, that greater story of redemption. But the story of redemption is God's story, but it's also a story that ultimately is for our benefit. The very familiar verse John in John's Gospel, John 3.16, of course, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world that he gave his only Son. There's the, the gift of Christmas, this, this wonderful gift. And friends, that is a benefit for us all. Jesus is God's gift to us. We are undeserving of any gifts from God, but God has been kind to us in sending us son to the earth to take upon himself the form of mankind and ultimately be that sacrifice once for all. And we are the benefits, beneficiaries of that. Yet one of the great benefits of Christmas is to realize and to remember that we have been adopted. And friends, that is what this very familiar passage of Scripture that is often quoted at Christmas, that's found in Galatians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 7, it's what Paul is saying. He's emphasizing this wonderful benefit that we have because of Christmas. And so Paul is drawing our attention his original readers, and us who now, years later, are are gathered together looking at his word. He's drawing our attention to see the beauty and the importance of what it means to be adopted. And so truly, Christmas is a call to live our lives fully as adopted sons. Now, as I say that, I do want to kind of qualify something here or explain something, not qualify, in our present culture to just emphasize sons and not mention daughters can be offensive. Except it wouldn't be historically accurate. Because ultimately it was the sons who had the rights in the Roman context, which Paul is speaking of. If we were going to add daughters to what is happening in this text, it would be meaningless because it would change the whole point of what Paul is arguing here. The idea of sons includes both men and women. And we read that earlier, right? Jew and Gentile, male, female, slave or free. Now, let me draw your attention to how this text is structured. I want you to notice, first of all, in verses 1 and verse 7, we have some very similar things happening, right? In verse 1, we find this, this, this identification here. Paul moves from an heir to a child and then to a slave. And then in Verse 7, Paul moves from slave to the son and to an heir. 
You might say this is kind of like a bookending of this text. He's introducing something. He's already introduced it in chapter 3. That's why we began reading it. But now he's honing in on something. And he's saying there's, there's something happening here with this one who's a child, who's an heir, but who's also a slave, who ultimately is going to become a son who is a heir because they're no longer slaves. And we find then the purpose statement in verse 5. Notice what it says there in verse 5. So that we might receive adoption as sons. So I'm trying to help you understand how, how Paul is structuring this particular passage, giving us now the heart of that passage being this adoption as sons. So based on what Paul is saying, we can understand that the goal of Christmas is the cross, but the goal of redemption is our adoption based on this text. The incarnation brings the Son of God to earth where he sets his face toward Jerusalem to be the sacrifice once for all so that. And sometimes we think it all ends at the cross. Well, it it is accomplished at the cross, but what happens at the cross is the means by which other things take place. And that's what Paul is seeking to help us understand. So that we might receive the adoption as sons. So Christmas is not the end of the story, but one of the significant events in the greater story of redemption. Christmas anticipates what Jesus comes to do in dying on the cross, but Christmas also anticipates what will happen with all who believe the gospel. To put it a little differently, Christmas is a time to celebrate the wonderful, undeserving gift of adoption that comes to us through the incarnation and the finished work of Christ on the cross. And thinking through then what we have here in this text, you could even say this passage is talking about how a slave becomes a true son. And friends, God's story is out there for us to to marvel at and to rejoice over, but that story has us in mind. And we are undeserving of being the beneficiaries of that story, are we not? But what we have here then is a wonderful picture of how we move from slavery to being sons. And as we look at this text this morning, I want you to notice that Paul will begin with an illustration. And then he will continue on, secondly, with an explanation and application kind of together. And then ultimately, he will end up with some implications based on that illustration. So let's work our way now through this text. But before we do that, I want to draw your attention to chapter 3 and verse 28. Paul has been laying a foundation, and this, what he says in verse uh, 28, is really, or 29, I should say, is very important for us. Well, I've got it all wrong on here. It says 38, should say, should say 29. It says this, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, Heirs according to promise. And there's three things that kind of lay a foundation for us so that we can understand our text a little better. First of all, there's a condition. You who are, who are believers are in Christ. Being in Christ is Paul's way of talking about our salvation. So in Christ makes our salvation centered on him located him, all about him. Secondly, there's a relation. You're Abraham's offspring. The Jews 
prided themselves as being Abraham's descendants, physically. And Paul will argue then that we are Abraham's descendants spiritually, both Jew and Gentile alike. There's also a a fulfillment or a promise. You are an heir. So if we are God's children, if we're born again, we have the promise that we are heirs. We have an inheritance ready and waiting for us. All right, with that, let's jump in, first of all, and look at this fitting illustration. Look, if you would please, at verse 1 and 2. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. There really is two major things that we see here. First of all, the son as heir. Now, in most cultures, um, they recognize that it's not wise for children to receive their inheritance before they reach a certain age. You know what it's like for money to flow through the hands of a young person who doesn't have the discipline, doesn't have the mindset, doesn't have the wisdom to actually manage it well. So in our culture, it's normal for a will or a trust to specify that if both parents die while their children are still considered minors, that they will have a guardian who will take care of them and also be their legal parent until that proper age that is specified in that will or that trust. Now typically, we do not pass on our inheritance or give our sons and daughters the power over their inheritance while we are still living. Now, they may want that to change, but that's not typically culturally what we do, right? We see that there's wisdom in that. But as we think now in Paul's day, there's a different culture going on. So we've got to shift gears. We've got to think about how is it taking place in Paul's day. And in his culture, there are some significant differences, differences that will make what he's saying make sense. And, And Paul's laying that out for us. First of all, children in particular of wealthy parents were under tutors and stewards while they were young. So, you know, parents might have children, but they didn't necessarily always have a lot of interaction with those children. They had servants or or people that they paid to come and take care of them uh, while they were growing up. Secondly, as Paul says, as long as he is a child, he's no different than a slave. So they were treated in the same way as household slaves were treated. Now, don't think negatively here. Think positively. Think of a home, you know, a Roman context where the slaves were actually treated well and were taught, were educated, were were dealt with by these governors, but the child was not treated any different than that necessarily, okay? Third, as he says here, when it came to their inheritance, they were potential heirs. They were children of that father, but... Although it was, in theory, their inheritance, they don't receive that inheritance except for the discretion of the father. So Paul points out that they were under guardians who watched over them personally and managers or trustees who watched over the estate until the time set by the father. And so the the Roman uh, father, uh, the Roman culture gave absolute authority and discretion to the father to set a time for this formal public recognition of sonship, the time when he was released from his guardians and managers, and he then was 
adopted. Okay? So this word adopted is talking not so much about a child that's not been a part of the family coming into the family in this sense, in the illustration that Paul is using. It is, in a sense, a rite of passage for an actual son to take his place now as being this true son with full rights and full um, responsibilities. So although a son was an heir, he lived a life like any other household slave under the care of guardians and managers until a specific day when his father would raise him from the status of heir to the status of son. So the son is heir, and then we move on and just kind of explain it a little bit further. The son not only is an heir, but he's adopted. This coming of age recognition of the heir as son is what scripture then identifies as this child's adoption. It was literally called a son placing. And up until this time, William Hendrickson uses this kind of language to explain what's going on. The child was only an heir de jour, not an heir de facto. In other words, he was an heir by legal right, but he was not an heir in fact. So he was potentially an heir, but he wasn't one who actually had received his inheritance. But at the time, or that date set by the father, the child's status radically changed. Now see, as as we're working through this, we're beginning to see the importance of the statement in verse 4. See, he was no longer simply an heir de jure, but became an heir de, de facto. He was no longer a child like a slave, but a responsible adult and a citizen. So it was at this appointed time that the Roman boy would perform a ceremony. And this ceremony involved him gathering his toys and going before a Roman god and offering those toys as a sacrifice to the gods as a symbol of putting his childhood behind him. And that is, that is the analogy that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians when he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. See, he's referring back to this whole transition of becoming a child to becoming a, an adopted, fully-fledged son. So, the, this illustration of of a child coming of age was easily understood by the Jews and Gentiles. Why? Because it was part of the culture of that day. They were all well aware that as long as the heir was a child, he was under conditions that did not differ at all from the slave. But at an appointed time, the child would be adopted as son. All right? So we get the idea then of this illustration. It's a fitting illustration. It's helpful for us because Paul is giving us this illustration because he wants to teach us something then about us. So we move on now to what I'm calling a fulfilled incarnation. We think about the incarnation, it's certainly in this text, but it's there for a reason, and it's there for a reason to to provide the argument that Paul has for the Galatian church who needed counsel in this area. So this illustration now moves to an explanation and application to them specifically. And here we're going to see three things. A past condition, God's loving provision, which results then in a privileged position. All right? Notice first our enslaved condition. In the same way, get that? In the same way. So Paul's saying, just like I illustrated here to you what this looks like, the son 
this child becoming son, being adopted. Now I want to apply this to you. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So, just as this illustration, Paul is saying that those who lived as God's children before Christ came, were true sons, but they were under governors and messengers. They were waiting for a time when they would be brought into full recognition of their sonship. Up until that time, Paul says, they were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, friends, this is a difficult expression to interpret. What are the elementary principles of the world? Well, some people have come up with the idea that what's being talked about here are demon spirits who rule a present world system. I don't think that's it at all. Others have thought of this as being a reference to the stars and therefore the pagan system of astrology. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think it's best to recognize this to refer to the basic elementary principles of human religion. Now, if you look at chapter 4, verse 9, just down your page there, you'll notice what Paul says. He says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? The argument that Paul is making to the Galatian church is his tone, you might want to say, is to confront them, confront them as believers who had retreated back to the religious traditionalism of the Pharisees and Sadducees and to call them back from these elementary principles and so live out of the freedom that they now have in Christ. They'd retreated back into a religious works-based system. Okay? So with that in mind, it's clear that what Paul's referring to here as he uses this phrase, the elementary principles of the world, is the kind of religious beliefs and structures that they, both Jews and Gentiles, embraced before Christ came. So for the Jews, for Israel, they were enslaved to the law. That's what Paul said earlier. For the Gentiles, they were enslaved, yes, to the law, it was there, but they were also enslaved to their own man-made religion. They had systems that ultimately were all works-based systems when people were saying, God, I have done this. I have done all these things. Haven't I done enough to be accepted by you? That's religion, friends. That's not the gospel. That's not what the Word of God says is how we make things right with God. We're made right with God by virtue of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for our sins, paying for our sins. And we, we come to him by putting our faith and trust in the sacrifice that was given by Jesus on the cross for our benefit. It's not a works-based thing at all. And so both Jewish traditions and pagan religions centered in man-made systems of works. They were filled with rules and regulations. This also happens within the umbrella of Christianity. I know some of you might have come from churches where how you measure your status with God is not so much about your heart relationship with God, it's about the things that you did do and the things that you didn't do. And so you list off all the things, I did this, I did this, I did this, and then all these things I didn't do, and there's no heart relationship with God at all. It's all formality, it's all rules, it's all regulations, and all the time you're striving to somehow please God and, and make sure that you're accepted by him when that's what the gospel has done. 
So why would you retreat back into that kind of system of slavery when you have the beauty of the gospel with its freedom that comes by virtue of Christ? All of those systems fall short. They still fall short today. Let me remind you of what we read earlier, and now you can read it with a little better understanding than maybe when we first read it. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, the faith there being talked about is the Lord himself. Okay. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise. And so Paul is emphasizing that the Jews under their present religious system of seeking to keep the law and the Gentiles who are seeking to find favor with God by their effort are both enslaved. But true worshipers of God um, are no, although we're under tutors before Christ comes and that was their status, but God now has moved to resolve this problem. So we continue on here from this first point of our enslaved condition, which is a reflection then of the illustration, this is who we are, this is us, to God's redemptive provision. So this was our condition. Now God is stepping in. He's going to say, this is what I've done. And now look at verse, verse 4, and we'll read through uh, the middle of verse 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Friends, this is what Christmas is about. Christmas is not about the sentimental, you know, wonderful fuzzies that we get because we're looking at a child in a manger, and isn't that child cute? That child may be cute, but that's not the point. That might be the story of Christmas. That might be the story of what happened, but it's the impact. It's what God has done breaking through releasing his hand of heaven, entering into this world, taking upon him for himself the form of a servant, being fashioned as a man, and ultimately going to a cross. This is, you might want to say, the peak of redemptive history, beginning then with, the, with the, his incarnation and ending then with his, um, his exaltation having, having been resurrected. By redemptive history, I simply mean to talk about God's plan to restore mankind to himself once for all through a sacrifice. Of course, that would come through a Messiah. And this is why we celebrate the incarnation. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible, powerful, humbling act by God for our benefit. And it comes at the right time. The Father has determined this time. You're getting some of the analogy here. The Father has come and said, now is the time. Now, there's some factors that kind of, you might want to say, were significant thinking about that time. The timing was right religiously, um, and part of that was because 
um, Israel had been taken captive. And during their time of captivity in Babylon, one of the things that took place was we have the completing of the Old Testament scriptures. We call them Old Testament scriptures. They would have called them the scriptures. But we also have the establishment of this thing called a synagogue. It was a place for worship. It was a place for, for teaching. It was also a place to carry out um, legal issues. But during that time, the people of God, the, the, the people of Israel, were taught to anticipate a Messiah. So religiously, there was this, this hunger, this desire, this longing for a Messiah to come. Secondly, it was the right time politically. And one of the reasons it was right time politically is because of this thing called the Pax Romana, which was the Roman peace. Under a Roman emperor, there was a season of this peace that, that encompassed all of the territory that Rome um, was in charge of. Third, it was, a, it was a, a right time culturally. Two things in particular that, that are significant about this time, they kind of build on the last one, because it was this time of peace, the Romans had built these roads all across their empire. And if we know, the Romans were incredible builders. And because of these roads, there was lots of travel going everywhere, and there was much more safety on the roads because of the way they constructed these roads and, and the systems they had in place. And as a result of that, you have people from all over that that region, gathering together, mixing together, and interacting together, whether it be for trade or for just for other kinds of travel. Then you also had Koine Greek. Koine Greek was the common language of that day. That was the result of Alexander the Great's impact in that region. It became the standard language. It would be the English of that day. If you wanted to speak, you may have your native tongue, but if you, you would always also know Koine Greek. That was the common language. And so the timing was right because when Jesus came, he was able to speak and he spoke in this Koine Greek. He used other languages too, but he spoke in Koine Greek and that was understood by people from all over the place. You get that? And all these people are congregating together from different places would then go out by virtue of the roads, but also with a language that was common so the gospel could go forward with great power and speed. So in the big picture of God's redemptive plan, God's timing was perfect. Each of these factors was in some way a key to the spread of the gospel. So at the right time, God moved to initiate the events of his redemptive plan. So we find that plan then unfolded for us here. God sent forth his son. Jesus comes both as a, a sovereign initiative but also as a voluntary act of submission. In other words, God sends, Jesus submits. But Jesus' will is totally one with the Father, yet it is his own will. It wasn't as if the, the, you know, the God had said, all right, son, you got to go down there now. All right, I know you don't want to, but go. No, no, no. This is all part of the Godhead's plan, and it was voluntarily done by virtue of the Son. And in sending his Son, the Father also publicly acknowledges him as his own Son. And he does that twice. The first place is at his baptism. The second place 
is at the incarnation. And what is it that the Father says to announce that Jesus is his son? Well, he says this, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Transfiguration, he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You see what's going on here. This is, if you want to use the analogy that Paul is using, this is Jesus' adoption. This is Jesus' acknowledgement. The testimony of the Father that his Son is now to be listened to is all part of this transition that's taking place. Okay? So this is Jesus' adoption, the time when he is affirmed by the Father and acknowledged as son and heir in full standing. God sent forth his son. Secondly, his son is born of a woman. This is the only reference uh, to the virgin birth outside of the Gospels. Jesus certainly is born of a virgin, but the, the emphasis here is the fact that he's born of a woman. And the idea there is to say that Jesus is truly human. He doesn't have a human father. He's bypassed this uh, continuation of the seed of Adam by being born of a woman. But he has a heavenly father. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit. All right? So he is fully human. He is fully divine. And so like all of us, He is born of a woman, but unlike all of us, he is without sin. These are significant truths. God sent forth his son, born of a woman. All right? Second, or thirdly, his son is born under the law. Now, this is a very important phrase. Because, you know, we usually think of Jesus as coming in the New Testament, right? That's where the record of the, the gospel is. It's the New Testament. But the reality is when Jesus came, he was still under the Old Testament system. All right? He was born in the Old Covenant. And he is the beginning of the New Covenant. Jesus is himself the transition between the two ages, the Old and the New. So he's also born under the law in the sense that he lives a fully human life in the midst of a fallen humanity. Still experiencing the kind of struggles and the temptations that you and I would all experience. He's truly human. He got hungry, thirsty, tired. He needed sleep. He needed rest. He felt pain, grief, joy, sorrow. He knew what it was like to suffer. He was tempted just like we are. He was living a holy, righteous life in the midst of mankind's sinful mess. He's born under the law. Then we're told that this son came to redeem those who were under the law. So he enters the world under the law because Israel is in the world under the law enslaved under the law. The idea of redeeming here is this allusion to the redeeming of a slave. The owner was paid a price and the slave was set free. This is the idea of redemption. 
And in going to the cross and in dying in our place, he has paid the price. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We were enslaved to the law. But when Jesus came, he died on the cross. He purchased us from our enslavement so that we might live fully and freely as sons. Now, friends, this theme, this illustration, this motif of redemption is throughout the pages of God's Word. Just listen to a few. You know this if you are uh, in any way, shape, or form a student of God's Word. We hear about it in the, the Mosaic Law where one could buy a slave's freedom. We hear about it in the book of Ruth where Boaz is the kinsman redeemer who buys her estate and marries her. We hear about it in the book of Job as we read earlier this morning where he says, I know that my redeemer lives... We hear about it in the words of Isaiah, who sees God as Israel's redeemer, where he says, Fear not, you worm of Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. That's Isaiah 41 and verse 14. In the Gospels, Luke records Zechariah's prophecy. He was the father of John the Baptist, if you remember. He begins his prophecy with these words, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. In the New Testament, we also find clear statements about what God has done to bring about our deliverance. We have been bought with the price, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. We have been redeemed from the curse of the law. That's in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. And in Mark's gospel, that wonderful, beautiful passage, we're told in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that he gives his life as a ransom for many. And then Paul also affirms Jesus' word in 1 Timothy. He says he gives himself a ransom for all. So this theme is throughout the word of God, friends. And it is the, it is the purpose statement of this text, so that we might be uh, receive adoption by virtue of his redemption. So friends, get this. We were enslaved, but God has redeemed us. But it doesn't stop there, right? Because we move then into our privileged position. Yes, even in today's culture, it's important for us to say as believers that we are privileged. It's okay to be privileged, Especially in this sense. Why are we privileged? Because we are not slaves anymore. Because of what Christ has done, we are what? Sons. We have been adopted. Now think about this privileged position. So that we might receive adoption as sons. The result of God's redemption, uh, or redemptive acts I should say, in his redemptive plan is that God chose the time for our adoption as sons. So all who have been formerly enslaved to the law, Israel, Gentiles, you and me, can now be fully acknowledged as both sons and heirs with full rights and promises. You've been born into God's family and are true sons. And again, the tone of this letter to Galatians is important for us to hear. If we are adopted as sons freeing us from the tutorship and governance of the law, why would we go back to that rather than enjoy the freedom and the fullness of being in Christ? It would be foolish. And that's what 
Paul says to the Galatian church in chapter 3, verse 1, you are a foolish people. Right? Now, here we have this fulfilled incarnation. This is one of the reasons why Christ has come. But we now want to move into the, I want to say, the implication side of it. The implication side of it means, so, so what does this mean? How does this affect you? What difference does it make? And here's what Paul says. And we'll begin now by looking at verse 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So because we are adopted as sons, there are some very real and practical implications that affect us all. Paul moves from the big picture of redemption now to the practical application for his readers. These are encouragements for us as well. Two major things that he says here. First of all, we are the recipients of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is sent into the world to live among men. The Spirit is sent into the world to live in men. Friends, hear this. Because of the incarnation, we celebrate at Christmas and the death, burial, and resurrection we celebrate at Easter. We who believe are born into the family of God and are full heirs with full rights to our inheritance. And, and did you notice, though, verse 6, where we have all three persons of the Trinity working in unity to effect a radical change in our hearts? Look at verse 6 again. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. God the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, all working together to affect our hearts. And what's the end result of that? Well, the end result of that is that we are crying out, Abba, Father. But friends, this, this, this transition or this, this further development, this promise of the Holy Spirit is what Jesus had already promised. John chapter 14 and verse um, 16 says this and following. And I will ask the Father, this is Jesus speaking, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells within you and will be in you. I will not leave you as what? Orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live in you. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And so we have to understand this, that as surely as God the Father fulfilled his promise to send the Savior, so the Savior fulfills his promise to send the Spirit. This is where Paul is moving. And, though, and through that Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. Literally, it means Daddy. It's the cry of a son who sees his father from a distance and comes running to him. It's, a, it's an intimate cry because you know that you are loved. It's a familial cry because you know that you belong. It's a joyful cry because the Father is present. It's a satisfying cry because you are safe. The Holy Spirit, if you're a child of God, lives in you. 
and changes the cry of our hearts. Not only that, and this is simply an outflow of what he's saying, you are recognized as sons. So you're no longer a slave. Right? You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer imprisoned by the law. You're no longer held down by the elementary religious principles that govern worldly wisdom. You're no longer in the needing guardians and, and managers to watch over you. Why? Because you have become sons. Now, friends, I've walked through this text quickly, and I realize we've, we've labored in this. Here's this illustration. Here's this explanation. Here's this implication. But I want to finish this morning by dialing in on these six beautiful things that are true because of our adoption. All right? So everyone take a breath. And let's just enjoy these six beautiful things. All right? Number one, our adoption is undeserved. I don't know about you. Anyone here have Compassion International kids? Anyone here? I mean, if, if, let me just put it this way. If, if you've ever you know, thought about adopting, one of the daunting tasks for you is which child are you going to adopt? I remember being in Russia and visiting an orphanage and looking at these kids and being daunted by the fact if God was leading me to adopt, how would I even go through the process of determining which child to adopt? And if you've ever tried to figure out adopting children, in a sense, through Compassion International or something like that, you know, you have these sheets of paper, maybe you're online and you have all these kids from different places, you're like, Lord, how, how do I make a decision here? We likely make decisions based on where that person's from, what they look like, things like that. But friends, there's, there's nothing in us that caught God's attention. He didn't look down and say, man, you are really smart. I'm going to call you to be one of mine. Or you're really dumb. You need me, okay? However you want to look at that, right? or you're ugly, or you're cute, or whatever it might be. That is not how God functions. There's something in the wisdom and the holiness and the purity of God that he adopts out of his being, and he does it in such a pure, right way. We are undeserving of his grace. And friends, we need to settle in that. Don't think, oh, God chose me because he knew that I would be a good preacher. Nonsense. He knows that I'm not a good preacher. He knows that I stumble. He knows that I'm sinful. He knows that I fail, that my words will go blah, 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 right? He knows that, but he works through weakness. Our world says you work through strength and power. God does things in an opposite way. And we, who have been adopted, are undeserving of that adoption. And we're undeserving all that comes with it. It truly is amazing grace. Secondly, why is adoption such a beautiful thing? It is freedom. We are no longer slaves. Hear this, friends. You, if you're a child of God, are no longer enslaved. Now, you might enslave yourself... You might entangle yourself 
But the point here is that you don't have to be enslaved. You've been liberated. You've been freed. So you are this, this child who was enslaved, who now has been set free, purchased by the blood of Christ, brought into his family. You are free. Just comprehend that. What is this world crying out for? I want to do what I want to do. We want freedom. Friends, the only real freedom is the freedom that is found in Christ. Simply doing what you want to do actually might be bondage because you're functioning by your flesh. Freedom is living your life for the glory of God by living out the implications and the applications of the Holy Spirit who's at work in your heart. You and I are free. And that freedom is undeserved. Third, and I think this one is so important, friends. Why is adoption such a beautiful thing? It is belonging. I'm reminded of the picture of Mephibosheth in the time of David the king. Mephibosheth was a cripple, but he was also part of David's enemy, Saul's family. And rather than put him to death, what does David do? He welcomes him into his home to sit at the table with him and the rest of his family. An enemy and a cripple. And friends, David, of course, is a picture of Christ. And that story is a picture of us and Christ that we are welcome at his table. What is that family table? It's the place where intimacy, it's the place of belonging. That's where it takes place. Because we are adopted, we now belong. Oh, friends, people are, are just looking to belong. They want to be a part of what is true. They want, they want significance in their life. They want to be part of a family. They want to belong. And when we are adopted, we are welcomed as sons into God's family. Cripples, sinners, rebellers who have been saved by God's grace, sitting at the table, enjoying beautiful intimacy with God and his family. Now, friends, that picture not only should be theoretical, but it should also be practical because here, in the context of our church, we should be trying to flesh that out too. That you all belong. Why? Because of what Christ has done. Undeserved. Freedom. Belonging. Here's the next one. It is acceptance. We are in Christ. We are clothed by his righteousness. We, we don't have to keep trying to prove to God that we are worthy. Why? Because we're not. <laughs> we're not worthy. We are not worthy to call ourselves Christians. We're not worthy to call ourselves followers of Christ. We are not worthy. We are clothed, not in our own righteousness, 
We are clothed in an alien righteousness. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So our acceptance is not because of anything we have done. Our acceptance before God the Father is all because of what Christ has done. And so we step into this family and we don't step in and, you know, and, and, and say, well, I've got all these struggles, I've got all these sins, and will they accept me or not? In the family of God, you who are forgiven are accepted by the Father. And what happens is that we fall flat on our face in sin, and we need to deal with that, but we think, oh, because I've sinned, we're no longer accepted. No, you're accepted, but there's a means by which you reconcile with the one who's the host at the table. We love the fact that we can gather together with God at the table, but friends, he accepts you, not because of you, but because of the glories of what his son, Jesus Christ, did for you on the cross by paying for your sin and reconciling you to himself. You don't have to do any more reconciling as far as your eternal condition is concerned. You're accepted. Friends, people want acceptance. But often people want acceptance on their own terms. And this is where, in order to be part of God's family, you don't rebel against what God says is the means by which you're accepted. You embrace it. I'm forgiven. My sins are paid for by virtue of what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross. Here's the next one. Adoption is such a beautiful thing because it is equality. Did you notice in the passage that we read how Paul emphasized that there are these elementary principles that are all kind of working in the religious systems of the world, the thinking of the world, and yet in Christ we have all become one. There's neither male, there's no, neither female, there's neither Jews or Greek, there's neither rich or poor, there's neither slave nor free. What is he, what is he getting at here? He's saying all these distinctions that we make are, are, are earthly distinctions. But true followers of Christ, true sons of Christ may come from these different areas, but you're all gathered together. You are one. There is equality, true equality in Christ, in the family of God. A couple of days ago, I was um, at Bath and Body Works. It was I was looking at the, the men's products, you know, there's this huge store with all this stuff here and there's like this one shelf of men's products and there's like two, three of us guys that are standing there and I was like, I said, if this isn't a picture of equality, I don't know what is, right? And they were like, yeah, man, what's up with that? You know, and then some lady came and says, well, it's all about marketing and stuff like that. It's like, no, this is inequality right here, right? <laughs> Friends, there is equality in the family of God. We all have different gifts, we all have different roles and, and functions and responsibility, but if there's one place where equality is actually happening, it's in the true body of Christ. But we're so consumed in our culture with, with, with what we want to force in to be that place of equality. Friends, it's sad. What people really need is they need to see the beauty of adoption that brings equality to all who have been embraced into the family. <laughs> Finally, friends, what is beautiful about adoption is it is life. It's eternal life. 
It's abundant life. It's purposeful life. It's rewarding life. Paul goes on to talk about living out then of this, out of this, this, this role and this position as being adopted. It's a life that has meaning. It's a life that has purpose. It's a, a life fueled by the Godhead, and it is lived for his glory. Now, friends, this may not be what you would typically think of. This is a Christmas sermon. But friends, there is, there is a, a Christmas, I want to say, point in this text that is driving everything that's happening here. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Well, isn't that interesting? Well, it's not interesting unless you know why it's there. And the reason it's there is to say that all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus have now been adopted, moved from slave status to son status, They've been adopted fully and completely in the family of God with full rights as citizens. That's both men and women. We are all, for God's children, sons, not just heirs, the recipient of the full blessing of God because of what he has done on the cross. May we celebrate that understanding, not just of Jesus coming to earth is beautiful and wonderful and as important as it is. But this text drives us to say there's a reason for it. There's momentum. There's movement. He came to redeem us, but he also comes to adopt us. Lord, help us today as we continue to reflect on the beauty of your incarnation to see the blessing and the joy that we have of being redeemed by virtue of that redemption, of being identified as adopted sons. And Lord, I just ask that as we ponder the reality of this truth, that we would think more carefully, more clearly, about how beautiful this relationship is with you. To be able to sit at the family table and to be served food, friendship, intimacy, dependency, love, comfort, help, all those things because we are part of this family, Lord. It's just a wonderful gift to us. All because of what you have done, sending your son, Jesus Christ, who then gives us his spirit as we are adopted into his family. Lord, help us today contemplate these truths to live them out for your glory. We ask in your precious name. Amen.